Hello, it's Monday, February the 28th, and this is The Andrew Pearce Show, coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Coming up, we're going to be talking about Ukraine, of course, but tomorrow is Shrove Tuesday. And if your teen is vegan, we're going to give you some tips on how to make the ideal pancake. In football, England win at Twickenham, but it's not pretty. The FIFA, far too weak, in my view, on Russia. And what about the effect of the sanctions on the Russian economy? The Russian ruble has collapsed despite the country doubling its interest rate to 20%. We're talking about the Daily Mail appeal. It's already over three quarter million pounds to support the vast army of refugees who are already leaving Ukraine to escape Putin's troops. But first, Vladimir Putin has announced he's put Russia's nuclear forces on special alert. How worried should we be? So, Vladimir Putin says he's put Russia's nuclear forces on special alert, sparking fears that he could be contemplating, even preparing to launch a nuclear strike on Ukrainian military positions or the capital city of Kiev. The new threat follows a declaration of war where the Russian president announced the West would face consequences greater than any you faced in history. So what do we make of the talk? Is it just talk? Dominic Sambrick is a historian and host of the podcast, The Rest Is History. He joins me now. Dominic, you wrote powerfully today about who'd have thought it. There were you growing up in the 1980s, the Cold War at its peak. I'm a bit older than you and I don't remember the Cuban Missile Crisis, but I remember the tail end of it. Who would have thought that those fears would be back today and in a major European city too? Yeah, absolutely, Andrew. Um, And that's what's so chilling about it, isn't it? How quickly things can change. So, I mean, a week ago, a lot of speculation, but we didn't know that he was going to do what he did. Um, And I think the frightening thing is, so his his putting these missiles on alert, in in many ways, it's actually meaningless. It doesn't have tremendous practical consequences. But rhetorically, it seems to be sort of preparing the ground for something. And I think what's scary is that Mr. Putin is obviously an increasingly isolated, embattled, resentful and frustrated figure. And especially as his offensive, I mean, he supposedly thought it would be done and dusted in 48, 72 hours. That's clearly not going to be the case. Um, Will he feel that he needs to kind of lash out? And that's what's frightening. And I don't think there's any serious possibility that he would initiate a nuclear exchange with the West. I mean, he would be absolutely demented even by the standards of dictators to do that because, of course, the result would be the annihilation of his own people. But could he be using tactical nuclear weapons, so battlefield nuclear weapons in Ukraine? I mean, a week ago, I would have thought the suggestion ridiculous. Today, I wouldn't rule it out. And that's what's so frightening, that we just don't know how his mind is working. And do we know, clearly or not, Dominic, the chain of command. Now, we know in the United States, we've seen Air Force One, we've seen all the films, we've read all the books about the codes, and wherever the president goes, uh, the codes go with him. Uh, We know in Britain, if we wanted to use our own nuclear deterrent, it's all tied up with the United States. But does Putin pull the trigger, or is it down to the Russian military? Um, I think they answer to him, and I, I don't see any reason to doubt that they would do what he told them. I mean, so we know, for example, in 1983, there was another that was actually one of the scariest sort of near misses came when NATO had a war game called Able Archer. Um, I've written about it in the mail, so some of the listeners will, will know about this. NATO had a war game in the Soviet Union, completely misread it. And Yuri Andropov, who was the um, 
general secretary of the Soviet Union at the time, he was in hospital dying, and they actually had an aide by his bedside, kind of with the nuclear codes. So, there's, I mean, it's the top man who makes the decision. And the way that Putin's Russia now works is that everybody there, you know, there are no alternative focuses of power. There are no dissenting voices around him. Everybody who was there, I mean, you saw it. If you saw that extraordinary meeting a week ago when he summoned his security council, and one by one they had to go up to the podium, they are terrified of him because they are frightened. I mean, they're frightened of him and of each other. So is there any possibility of kind of military men defying him, you know, or staging a coup or just saying no? I, I, I don't honestly think there is. And I think, again, that's one of the frightening things. I guess that's the hope is, and I've talked to generals and you've talked to them in the last few days, that if this conflict continues to get bogged down, if it isn't the clean victory he thought, as the oligarchs begin to pull away from Putin, we've already seen um, a couple of them have done so today, that then unrest will increase. And does that then ferment possibly, particularly if the streets continue to be lined with demonstrators, Dominic, would that ferment unrest so that perhaps if he was tempted to go for this nuclear option, that he'd be prevented? I think actually the oligarchs are not really the key factor here. So Putin over the last 20 years or so has actually moved, already moved against us, the oligarchs. And the people around him don't tend to be oligarchs so much as former security people. So people from his KGB days and people from the kind of, you know, the military, the KGB, the former KGB side of things. Yeah. So I think it won't be so much the oligarchs. I think, frankly, and I, I know this is a very unlikely prospect, but um, one hope might be that as the sanctions bite, you know, we've already seen interest rates yeah. double in Russia today, as the ruble yeah, amazing. is queues building up, people's savings being wiped out, that that would create anger if people say, because don't forget this war, has never been terribly popular in Russia. Um, a lot of Russians were astonished to find they were actually in it. They're currently being lied to about it. If people think my savings have been destroyed and it's all his fault, that could change things, I yeah. suppose. But, but the trouble is that that's fighting against this anti-Western narrative where everything is the West's fault. The evil West have conspired with Ukrainian Nazis and these lies that are pumped out by Putin's propaganda machine. I guess, though, that the difference with 20 years ago or um, uh, perhaps when he went into Georgia in, what, 2008, social media is it's proliferated much more and far more people have access to social media, Dominic. I know he's taken down Facebook and Twitter, but it's back up and it's down and it's back up. But perhaps people are getting... Uh, an alternative uh, view of history uh, as, as to one that the Kremlin is pumping out. Yeah, I mean, one would hope so, Andrew. I mean, that's obviously the hope. I mean, that's why that's why there's a, there's a really interesting argument going on about Russia today. So if the West bans Russia today, then Russia reciprocally would ban Western media outlets. And the argument against that is that obviously we want the Russians to hear our news. We do. That, I mean, that's a difficult decision. And I think one would hope that enough Russians over time that they they look past the kind of Putin propaganda machine and they look at the social media stuff that, I mean, that they have access to it and all that side of things. The, you know, the thing is, you know, that um, I would love to be more optimistic, but and, and there are anti-war demonstrations, incredibly brave people, often young people, but they're not big. You know, they're not huge. They're not the hundreds of thousands that it would take, I think. I mean, let's hope it builds to that. 
Um, but it, I don't think it's going to build to that overnight. You, in your piece today, you make the point, and that's what's so worrying, that um, you talk about what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which brought an end to the war in the Far East. Two, more, two, more than 200,000 people are thought to have been killed. Today's nuclear weapons, you make the point, are far deadlier. And it, But if you read National Archive's declassified Cold War documents, even in the 50s and 60s, the death toll in Britain after a nuclear exchange was expected to run into tens of millions. Dominic, what would it be today? I think it would be tens of millions again, Andrew. I mean, the thing I would say about the Cold War and, um, you know, a third world war is that if such a thing were ever to break out, by far the best thing to do would be to be killed straight away. To to be living in the aftermath of it would be, you know, uh, apocalyptic doesn't even begin to convey it because, of course, you might well end up living in a kind of nuclear winter a world with no food, with polluted water, where people have developed cancer and so on, uh, where children are born um, with kind of all kinds of problems. So actually, I mean, I know this this, this is incredibly bleak for a Monday, yeah, for, a, for a Monday in, uh, in sort of a spring coming. But it's where we are, though, isn't it? It is where we are. Yeah, I think I think we have to think about it. I, I don't think it will happen. I think the death toll would be colossal because nuclear weapons now. They have a power, a lethal power, an order of magnitude greater than they did at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, we can destroy the world 10, 100 times over um, if we choose. I mean, the weird thing about nuclear weapons is obviously they kept the peace in the Cold War. That's the kind of paradox. I know, I know. That people were so, had they not existed, I think there would undoubtedly have been a third world war. But because they did exist, there wasn't one. But of course, the fear always is that you know, Putin has it all to lose. And he has said multiple times, what's the point of a world that doesn't have Russia in it? I mean, that's the kind of, for a dictator to say something like that is chilling, I think. I'm afraid it is. Well, Dominic, we have to hope that you're right. We're all hoping you're right, that it won't happen. But um, it's a fascinating piece, and um, it certainly brought it back to me. I lived in Cheltenham in the 1980s, where GCHQ was. <laughs> GCHQ, and I used to think of course. That would be the first place they'll take out. It would because, have been. Yeah, it absolutely so, would so have been, yeah. I, I, I would have been gone in the first first wave, Dominic, which is probably... Well, you'd have been one of the lucky ones in that case. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> that is uh, the very fine historian, Dominic Sambrook, who writes very regularly in our paper and, of course, is the host of the podcast called The Rest is History. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to our podcast, videos, opinion pieces and more. The effects of the sanctions on Russia have hit the, the country's economy and hard. The value of the Russian ruble has plummeted to an all-time low. In response, Russia has more than doubled its interest rate to 20%. The stock market in Russia has also been shut down for the day. Joining me now is Jeevan Sander. He's an economist at King's College London and was an official at the Treasury. Jeevan, do you think they expected the severity and the, the, the unity of the sanctions against them? Because whether it's the EU, G7, the United States, Britain, it's pretty dramatic stuff. I suspect not. I mean, these sanctions are clear, punitive and overwhelming. And as you said, the Russian economy is in crisis this morning. You know, Putin spent a long time preparing for this invasion. Since 2014, he's been trying to decouple his economy from the West. He was setting very little debt abroad. He had this huge amount of reserves, 500 billion that wasn't in gold. And then as of this morning, of course, those reserves, those that held in Western nations have been frozen ejection from the SWIFT system, meaning that Russian companies are finding it difficult to make payments. 
look, he went all in on this card to invade Ukraine. He thought he had the funds to do it. It looks like he's about to lose quite badly, at least on the economics. Just to explain about the foreign reserves, because um, some of them, of course, are kept in the Russian central bank. Some of them, of course, we probably know are in one of Putin's own bank accounts. But that's another story. But a lot of his reserves were kept abroad. How does that work, Jeevan? And what will now have happened to those? Presumably they are all frozen. Sure, yeah. So the Russian central bank has on paper $500 billion of foreign exchange of pounds, yen, euros, dollars, and Chinese renminbi. But those dollars, etc., are not actually held physically in Moscow. What Moscow has is effectively a piece of paper saying they own it. And now, whether it's the Federal Reserve in New York or the Bank of England, are saying we're not going to fulfill that order. So three to $400 billion of those reserves are now effectively being confiscated by Western nations, and Putin cannot access them as things stand. Do you think he didn't realise that was going to happen? Because that was a massive miscalculation, if so. Yeah, I, I would have thought so. I, it is, I can't believe that they were still stored abroad and that they were still there. Um, I don't think he realised it. I don't think his economic advisors did. Now, from what we're hearing from kind of people around or who kind of see Putin is that his number of advisors shrunk dramatically and he's hearing kind of input from yes men. So no, I don't think he saw this as an outcome. And of course, we know that he's already isolated, but COVID in the last two years has isolated him even more because he's paranoid about catching it, hence those extraordinarily long tables where he meets politicians. Um, What of the uh, other measures, the ban on flights, the um, uh, chucking them out of the SWIFT system, that's all effective, Jeevan, but the problem still is this. Did I not read in the last 24 hours that the United States and the European Union bought around £800 million of gas and oil from Russia at vastly inflated prices? Doesn't that go straight into the war machine uh, at fighting against Ukraine? It certainly does. I know, as things stand, one of the reasons why in the past, for example, our sanctions against Iran were so effective was because we could simply stop buying their oil and reduce it. But actually here, we need natural gas. 40% of Europe's gas comes from Russia. We depend on gas for 40% of our supplies. It's certainly true. That is exactly where our money is going. It's the reason why in the longer term, we need to go to net zero and stop funding dictators with oil and gas. But for the short term, we are kind of stuck in this symbiotic relationship. Now, Putin needs to export it to get the dollars, and we need it to heat our homes. It looks like we're stuck in that particular trading relationship. Just finally on that, um, the alternative, One, obviously we, we can invest more and more in alternative energy, wind, tidal and all the rest of it, Jeevan, but the more immediate thing we could do is to buy liquid gas from places like Qatar. But it's hugely expensive and it has to be delivered by ship. Yeah, indeed so. And also we should remember, of course, as everyone knows, who is listing because they're feeling it in their pocket. Bills are already going up. Inflation's already going to hit 7%. This year would go up even higher. I suspect that at the moment, the calculation is both of the SWIFT and the central bank impact will be so damaging that we wouldn't then need to also have sanctions on their energy exports. But agree, certainly, it would be more ideal to not be buying gas from Russia at this particular point in time. 
And just finally, um, is this the most draconian economic sanctions you've ever been aware of with your long view of history, uh, Jeevan, against one specific country? Certainly in terms of the, the size of Russia's economy, we know that sanctions against Venezuela were also very damaging. Indeed, as I said earlier, Iran didn't have those exemptions, but certainly against what is a major economy, the third largest military. Uh, I've never seen something like this and seen a financial crisis that's kind of been precipitated by Western actions and reverberates in this particular manner. Fascinating. Jeevan Sander, economist at King's College London, a former Treasury official. Great to talk to you. So hundreds of thousands of refugees have already crossed borders into neighbouring countries after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The conflict could c create as many as 4 million refugees. The Prime Minister has already said those refugees with family connections in Britain will be prioritised and can come here. The Daily Mail has launched an appeal so readers can help those who've been displaced by war. They've donated £268,000 in the first day. And the Daily Mail's parent company, DMGT, has added £500,000, which means we're already above three quarters of a million pounds. Lord Rothermere, the proprietor, says the heroism of the Ukrainian defence humbles us all, but we in Britain can play our part too. John Stevens is the Daily Mail's deputy political editor. John, it's a terrific start, isn't it? £268,000 in the first 24 hours from our readers. Yeah, and if you look at those pictures of those families having to flee their home country, I think a lot of people will just think they want to do absolutely everything that they can to help them. And obviously, these people need accommodation, they need schooling, they need medical support, and this is what this money is going to go, go towards. Um, it's quite interesting that the politicians have uh, buried their differences here. Both Boris Johnson and the Labour leader, Sir Keir Starmer, have supported the, the newspaper's appeal. Yeah, you know, Boris Johnson gave a very supportive quote. I mean, he said that the people of the UK have got a proud legacy of coming to the aid of those experiencing persecution, and he has paid tribute to male readers for how generous they've been already and Keir Starmer you know he talked about the immense bravery that the people of Ukraine have shown and talked about the importance of these charity appeals being able to help these people. Yeah and I know currently the male Ukraine appeal is in its early days it's going to be distributed to charities and aid organisations providing essential services a number of reputable charities formal announcements are expected in the coming days. Now just to, just so people know John you're talking to Downing Street all the time obviously it's still day five day six of this war um, but it's encouraging in some respects, isn't it, that it appears that Putin's advance is not anything like as swift, as as sophisticated and as straightforward as perhaps he'd been expecting. Yeah, and that's what the Ministry of Defence has been saying the last couple of days, that, um, you know, things haven't quite gone to plan for Putin. That's partly because they're having logistical problems on the Russian side, and it's partly because of the resistance that the Ukrainian people are putting up, but it's obviously still a very concerning situation. You've got all those troops massing around Kiev, which is obviously a highly populated area, a lot of normal civilians living there. Yeah, and I wonder if you can just finally, John, the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss, there's some confusion. She was asked on some of the broadcast shows on Sunday, if people want to go to fight, should they? Now, she didn't say she'd encourage it. She said, but if people want to go, she would support it. I think the Foreign, policy, the foreign Office advice is you cannot travel to Ukraine currently but if you are trained militarily and you do want to help the ukrainian people i think the advice is to go to the ukrainian embassy would that be right yeah the government seems to have changed their line slightly on this it seems that 
Liz Truss was freelancing yesterday that that wasn't quite the government policy. And Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, was out on the broadcast round this morning and he was saying that if people aren't trained soldiers, then they're probably not the right thing for them to do to go and fight. Yeah, because if they're not trained, they're going to get in the way and be more trouble than they're worth, with all respect to people, even even if they want to go with the most noble of um, intentions. That's the Daily Mail's Deputy Political Editor, John Stevens. The details of how to give money to our appeal, they're all in the paper, and you can also see it on Mail Plus. It's a very worthy cause. We're already up over three-quarters of a million, and it's only 24 hours since we launched the appeal. Thanks for joining us. It's sports time. Matt Gatwood here, Deputy Sports Editor, cycled in, keeping uh, fit and healthy. Now, FIFA, what a useless, hopeless, rotten organisation they are. Absolutely incredible, yeah. Um, they had a chance to make a stance, make a stand, do You know, it's not exactly um, a difficult decision to make, is it? They've got an open goal here yeah. where they could have uh, kicked Russia out of the FA, uh, out of the World Cup, the forthcoming World Cup. Uh, but instead, they've chosen to follow in the sort of uh, the, the, the way that the uh, Winter Olympics and the IOC have, have, oh, have done these things. But, you know, we weren't in the situation when the Winter Olympics started of Russia bombing uh, one of their neighbouring countries. Mm. We are now. So FIFA could have taken a completely different stance rather than hiding behind, well, this is what the IOC did. So we're going to do exactly the same. And by exactly the same, I mean they're basically allowing them to play on under, a, you know... There, a, is, there is rottenness when that terrible man Sepp Blatter was there. Well, absolutely, because Infantino is almost more in bed with Putin than uh, than Sepp Blatter was. So it's um, th- he does absolutely everything he can uh, to to sort of keep Putin happy in terms of giving him competitions um, and um, and that sort of thing. And and this is another example of it. You know, but will will it mean? But won't countries that are drawn to play Russia, they should simply refuse? Well, this is it. They have. So the, oh, right. the other countries have taken the the moral high ground here. Right. So, for example, uh, Russia involved in a play in a in a playoff for the World Cup coming up, yeah. their opponents have refused to play them Poland. Oh God, of course they. Have. So they've yeah. said we're not next playing. Next door to Ukraine. Yeah, and and but then the winners of the next uh, round to get into the World Cup, um, Czech Republic and Sweden, have said, well, we're not playing either. So the FIFA are sort of um, fudging the issue and saying, well, well, we'll deal with that. You know, we're in talks with these other nations to find some sort of resolution. Well, they won't find a resolution because no. these other countries will not play against no. Russia. No. England, the FA, have come out and said that we won't play against Russia at any level in any competition uh, football I'm talking you know uh, we, w- we won't play against them so you know for example there's some under 17 game uh, next month mm-hmm. where England are meant to be playing Russia that's been cancelled what remains to be seen is things like now there's a tournament uh, the women's Euros this year in this country Russia are meant to be there mm-hmm. now that's a UEFA tournament so UEFA could come out and say Russia aren't invited but at the moment we haven't heard the um, the outcome of that UEFA possibly will fall in line with FIFA but yeah absolutely shocking that shocking. FIFA wouldn't Poorly. just kick them out say you know while you're this is going on um, no chance of you uh, playing but yeah to cut, to say oh you can you know you can play but you won't have your flag and you won't have your national anthem but you'll still be playing under the Russian they're, they're, Federation or whatever just appalling now you'll be amazed to know that I watched the penalties did you in the well, I'm going to call it the League Cup final because yeah, everybody calls it. That's what it. we call it, yeah. And I said to my great friend Amanda Patel, our star columnist, yeah. who I, I was watching the penalties with, right. um, uh, when they pulled the goalie off, who'd been on the pitch for the best part of, what, how long? Yeah. Four, 90 so, minutes well, plus, plus extra, extra time. time yeah. I said, that's a mistake, isn't it, in case, it, because of the penalties? Yeah. Because he might have to take one. 
Well, it was so strange. And it's he ballooned it straight over. Oh, it's a, well, yeah. I, mean, I don't think he it's landed. He aimed it at the moon. I don't think it's landed yet. I think that's still travelling. But it was, yeah, absolutely extraordinary. So and apparently, the goalie who was substituted is one of the best goalies in the world. I'm told. Well, he is, and he, had, and he was probably, you know, Chelsea's man of the match. What's he was he outstanding. He had a great game. Pulled right. off one double save in the first half, which was extraordinary. From right. Mane, he was just about to score for Liverpool, yeah. and uh, and Mendy, the their number one, they, their first choice number one, pulled off a sensational save. So he was having a great game. Then they, as you say, just before penalty shootout, they swap him for oh. Kepa. Now, ironically, three years ago, you know the story of Kepa. No. He was on the pitch for Chelsea in the League Cup final against Man City, and he was playing. And they want, and the manager at the time, Sari, uh, wanted to bring on Willy Caballero as a specialist penalty ta- stopper for Kepa. Right. Kepa refused to go off. Oh. Um, this is when he just joined the club and he's still the world's most expensive goalkeeper and that's what he was when he joined Chelsea. He refused to go off. He said, no, I'm staying on, I'm staying on. Maurizio Sarri lost the plot on the side of the pitch. You know, the, the referee had to get involved and eventually Kepa stayed on. They lost that penalty shootout and he let one particularly weak penalty dribble underneath him. But he has had a good record in penalty shootouts since, which is why, mm, I didn't guess... Save last night. Well, no, he can get... Well, he got his hand on one out of yeah. uh, out of the Jesus. 11. So, And then to so the irony of the man who's bought on to I win know. it... About I tell you something, Matt Gatwood, I could have put that penalty closer to the net than his ball. <laughs> you probably because could. Because I thought, oh, I didn't know we were playing rugby. I know. Because no, no. it was so, it was it like was, vertical. It was extraordinarily poor penalty. I mean, you know, look, the pressure on and once... Oh, once, don't give me the well, pressure. How much do these people get paid True, at? but once the Liverpool keeper, Kelleher, scored his, yep. and with Kepa's history and with his background, yeah. you could just only see one How outcome. How is he the most expensive goalkeeper in the world if he's not the first team goalkeeper? Well, good question. Chelsea misspent, you could say. Uh, they uh, they misjudged it. They thought right. he was going to be their number one for years and he turned out not to be as good as they hoped. Um, so, yeah, it was a poor bit of recruitment by the club. Where's he from? What country? Spanish. Right. So I think, and I think in this this summer he will head back to. Uh, mm. He'll probably go back to a Spanish club, but you'd have thought because they've got Mendy, who's right. only about thirty, and will be around for a long time as their and number one. Goalkeepers go on a lot longer. Don't yeah, they? they can do. Yeah, go on to. And f- where's he from, Mendy? Mendy is from Senegal, so he, was he won incredibly the... cheerful when he's yeah. been taken off. He probably thought, "I oh, know this well, is going to end." I guess he'd been told if it goes to pens, you're coming off. I think if it had been out of the blue, he might have been uh, a little less mm. sanguine about things. Now England won at Twickenham, and I'm told it's not pretty. I wouldn't know because I didn't watch it, and I only realised this morning that we narrowly won. We narrowly won. Yeah, I, some I of my watched mates it. were I there. there. Some I, of my mates were there, too. as was I. Oh, right. So I formed that category. Did you have lunch in the car park? It's apparently a rugby tradition at Twickenham, which I, pulls me even more than the idea of watching the match. I didn't have lunch. In the, I had a pint in the car park before oh. going in. But yeah, but well, there's, well they've, what, made, they've got a bar in the they've car made, park. Yeah, they've got a big sort of. They've made a big area right. where by. I mean, it's not really a car park. There's no cars parked there. But they've oh. made well. It, there would be normally, but they clear it all out so that right. everyone can turn up. But I thought everybody had their lunch out of the boot of the car. Well, I, sp- I suppose there are areas, I guess, but but th- there might be areas where you can park and do that. But there right. are also big fan zone areas where they're selling lots of beers, and they basically want to, r- rather than drinking in the local pubs, which you know, they would rather you drank and, and Twickenham yeah. made the money rather than yeah. going to local hostelry. So it does make sense. So there's lots of right. be- beer stands and all that sort of stuff up. So, but no, I didn't. But I did right. enjoy. I, d- I did and it, and uh, enjoy it was close. the. We won by three points. Yeah, but it wasn't a great. Game. England okay. were again, um, uh, you know, 
just a lack of imagination, lack of ideas, given the players they've got on the park, given how confident we were going into the game. The fact that they lost Manu Tuolagi, but you know, in the week building up to the game seemed to, you know, make them devoid of any sort of attacking game plan. So the, the, the two bright sparks were Harry Randall at number nine, the scrum half, right. and Marcus Smith, this superstar number 10, who is a real um, absolute joy to watch because he's lively, he's quick, he's you can always thinking, always trying to get the, the game moving, but sadly let down by the rest of his teammates. I mean, Wales won three tries to one, if you want to look at it that oh. way. Um, and England relied on conversion on, on penalties being kicked by Marcus Smith. So there's that now England have got Twi uh, have got Ireland coming to Twickenham for their next game. Ireland are in great form, and then they go to Paris to play France. If they lose both of those games, which is entirely possible, if not probable, England will have ended up winning two games again out of five in the Six Nations, the same as they did last year, and Eddie Jones is taking the team nowhere, and they just do not seem to be progressing. With a World Cup a year away, it just feels like England are not making the strides forward they should, given the personnel they've got. Right, that's it then. Matt Gat would not be happy about that. Um, I didn't watch it, as you know, so um, anyway, you enjoyed it. Well, you didn't enjoy it. That's <laughs> the point. You didn't enjoy it. But, they but it was interesting. But it, it was, was interesting. interesting. That's Matt Gat with Deputy Sports Editor. Always a joy. Thank Thanks, you. Matt. Thank Cheers, you. Then. Cheers. Bye. Tomorrow, Shrove Tuesday, which means it's just about the start of Lent, which means you can dine out a bit. Pancakes. But what if your teen is vegan? What if your partner prefers savoury flavours? Or you just don't fancy boring lemon and sugar pancakes all over again. Food writer Sudi Piglet has offered some great off-the-wall pancake recipes in today's mail, and she joins me now. Now, Sudi, what's wrong with boring lemon and sugar? I quite like well, it. Well, I, I quite like them, but there's a sort of world of other uh, pancake ideas out there, and I think especially at this moment in time when we all want to feel more connected, to try out um, another country's pancakes seems like a really good idea. Um, and actually, in addition to the ones that I suggested here that are all kind of gluten-free and vegan, um, I was thinking that people might want to look up a recipe for Ukrainian Sereniki, which uh, they're very much like what, what I know, uh, being Jewish, as... Um, blintzes and they're they're sweet and they're made with sort of, um with raisins and then they have a kind of cottage cheese like filling and often finished with something like a cherry sauce and so they're kind of more dessert and they're really really delicious i just think it's good to give yourself a fresh challenge yes absolutely and and you're also you've you've come up with sunshine in a pancake now soccer that's a speciality of nice on the french riviera cooked to order in huge wood-fired ovens tell me more what how do you make how do you make this sudi well it's it's incredibly easy you just need chickpea flour which is often sold in asian shops as gram flour a little pinch of salt and a bit of pepper and um, a half a teaspoon of cumin, um, which makes it have a more toasty flavour. And then you gradually whisk in 500 mils of warm water until it's the consistency of double cream. Then you whisk two large egg whites until they're stiff and fold them in. I mean, really, really, and then, and then you cook them. Um, not, not for not for very long, but they should be nice and crisp, and they're they're also really good with drinks. Well, well, yes. Now, now, what about um, sweet and sour 
food. So this is Jiang Bing, China's most popular traditional street food. Milled flour, pickles, spring onions. Tell me more. Yeah, well, this 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 um, it was a relatively recent discovery for me. There was um, a kiosk in Soho selling them, and I think there there's a street food company in Manchester as well that sometimes pops up doing them. And they're uh, well, they're totally delicious. They're made with millet flour, which might be a bit new to people, and they can be made with soy milk as well. So also good if you if um, you want to a gluten-free diet so it's a, ba- a basic batter but um, they have quite an unusual filling because you add, add um, a whole a whole egg so it cooks a bit like a fried egg and then it's traditional to add things like spring onions and cucumber and lettuce and coriander and then also if you're not vegetarian um, some roast duck and hoisin sauce and a bit of chili sauce too, and if you can lay your hands on them, also they're very traditional to use wonton crackers. So you're not only getting sweet and sour taste, you're getting kind of soft and crunchy taste. So it's a kind of all over, you know, taste explosion. Sounds fabulous. Now, I'm not into vegan food at all, Sudi, but I know lots of people. No, no, I. <laughs> I know you're not. I know we're, we're, we're at one there, but I know lots of people listening will be. And if it's not them, often it's their children who will be vegans. So tell us about the arepa, which hails from Colombia, I'm told. They're really good for, uh, for vegan um, teens because. They're similar to a wrap. You can, you can stuff them with things like um, avocado and black beans. And they're made from another um, non-gluten um, substitute for flour, really. And it's it's called maricepa maize flour, which is surprisingly easy to find now. I mean, if you got your act together, you could order it in on Amazon, but you can find it in a lot of supermarkets or kind of more kind of multicultural stores, Caribbean stores particularly. Um, and if you really can't find that, you can use pre-cooked um, polenta. And um, again, it's a, just a mixture of the maricepa flour, water, oil, and a bit of salt. And you cook them on a griddle. So they look a little bit like muffins, but then you split them open and stuff them with all sorts of things. I mean, I particularly like them with avocado that's been spiced up with some chili and we could add something like planting as well which would which would make more substantial and now that you've got one here finally here um pang ji now this is a sweet one you're making here yeah it's really really delicious they're irresistible that's um probably the most popular non-conventional one amongst my my friends and particularly with my son when he was when he was younger because the mixture of coconut and banana and quite a lot of sugar and it's palm sugar so it's kind of extra caramelly it's just really yummy and um, they use it uses glutinous rice flour and coconut cream mm. they're really really good they could be like a sophisticated afternoon tea snack maybe with some jasmine tea and again they're, they're, you incorporate everything together so um, you you mash in the banana with the and this is glutinous rice flour 
they're all softly different. And then coconut, um, fresh coconut and desiccated coconut. Yeah, and you just set them all together and, and cook them in a frying pan. The thing you have to be really careful about is to get the heat right, not too high so that they burn and not too cautious. Otherwise, they don't color at all. And I hate anemic-looking pancakes. Yeah, you've got to have pancakes with a bit of colour. Well, look, you've whetted our appetite, Sudi, and um, I'm just going to have to try one of them. I'm probably going to try the least complicated one. Which one will that be? Well, it won't. It won't be the vegan one. You can be certain of that. And I'll tell <laughs> and I and I'll tell you how I got on. That's Sudi Piggott. Do read her fabulous pancake recipes in the mail today. Um, she's given us a little taste, if you don't mind me, pardon the pun, and um, and I'm going to try one of them out. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. And good night. (laughs) 